0: Welcome to our last episode of Triathlete Hour before we take a late summer break. I'm off now. My last day at Triathlete was last week, so we'll be taking a few weeks off, but don't worry, we're planning to be back with new episodes at the end of the month. And for this episode, we have an exciting guest, Leanda Cave, the four-time world champion at almost every distance, talks to us about how even in retirement she's considering one more distance world champion title, Ultraman. And then she tells us how her first Ultraman went two weeks ago. We also talk about how she got started in the sport, how she made a living and found her way, and what it was like becoming the first person to win the 70.3 and Ironman world titles in the same year. All of that after this break. Want to get more out of your rides beyond just distance, time, and pace? How about advanced navigation and the ability to see upcoming hills on your route? The Hammerhead Karoo Two helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential. Hammerhead's Karoo 2 seamlessly imports routes with turn-by-turn directions. The touchscreen display is also intuitive, responsive, and in full color, so you can see clearly in any conditions during all of your hardest workouts. Plus, Hammerhead's exclusive Predictive Path technology lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time, with or without a route loaded. That's why it's a favorite of top triathletes like Flora Duffy and Vincent Louis. Now, Hammerhead is giving Triathlete Hour listeners an exclusive limited time offer. Get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code triathletehour at checkout to get yours today. Now that's a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Karoo 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart, and use promo code triathletehour, all one word. All right, this week we're talking to Leanna Cave, the 2012 70.3 and Ironman World Champ, and most importantly, just recently, the second-placed finisher at Ultraman Canada. And now, we were just talking, Leanna, you were second overall and the second woman. The women really kind of dominated Ultraman.
1: Yeah, they did. I was actually surprised. I was also surprised that there was like a a large number of women on the start list, um, which, you know, even there was definitely more men, like three or four more men than women, but still, that's a a larger number than, um, I've seen in long, in Jeff, definitely in racing in general. So I was actually kind of, um, happy and encouraged to see that, you know, this was not just a sport I thought I was going to be able to do as a woman, but several other women thought they'd give it a shot as well.
0: And what made you, I mean, you're technically retired now, right? What made you want to do Ultraman in your retirement?
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's actually my my fiance, he, Michael and Dara, he, um, he planted this little seed in my head back last year, like January last year, saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you like won five world titles <laughs> and won the, the, the Ultraman world title? And I was like, hmm, I'd never ever thought about doing one before that. And then I was like, it kind of would be cool. And so that kind of started this quest and then last year I ended up getting hit by a car door and fractured my pelvis so I ended up having to, you know, postpone uh, to this year and then this year I didn't really take it awfully seriously. I wasn't really training specifically for it but I felt pretty fit just because I train a lot of clients privately Mm. and uh and so I was doing this race more just like okay let's just see how it goes because you can't like I'd have to qualify for the world champs meaning I have to do one of these races so I wanted to see what this race would um be like and how I would end up um you know racing it essentially and um it wasn't that bad (laughs) it It was because it's like the longest race on earth like I think I put together, like, three, eight, nine-hour days of of um, racing. And, and we're talking, like, slow racing. It's not like you race, like, short distance. It's not that hard. You just have to go long. And, uh, yeah, I fared pretty well. Um, I was surprised mostly with my run because I, I couldn't imagine in any – my wildest dreams to run 53, maybe in nightmares, <laughs> uh, run 53 miles but or 52 miles. I had 53 on my watch actually. That's why I say 53. <laughs> um, but it did. And so um, that really shocked me and recovery shocked me. I didn't think I'd be up and about doing anything for at least a week, but I, I only took two days off. So, yeah, I feel like maybe a distance that my body is – is okay with um now when I talk about doing the worlds, I'm still on the fence um and honestly if I if I my biggest reason why is economics it's a, it's a very expensive um thing to do okay um I don't have sponsors or anything and it's I've calculated I'd need about $25,000 to like pay for everything from, like, my crew to accommodation, rental car, food, um, like, all those sorts of flights, all that stuff. Like, that's um, – and then I also don't have a, a TT bike anymore, so I was thinking I might need to buy one of those. So, yeah, I put all those things together. and It's it's a very expensive thing, and quite honestly, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's um, – it's definitely not not something I can just fork that sort of money out for. So I'd have to probably raise money and then that, you know, that turns into a different thing because then I'm like, I don't want to raise money, some self-serving thing. I think it has to be bigger than that. So it'd have to be, for me, it would have to involve a charity arm or something where I can raise money for a charity. And um, if I could do it that way, I I would consider doing the World Champs. Otherwise, for me right now, I don't, I don't know if it's um, feasible.
0: I'm thinking about that. $25,000, like that's a lot of money. Yeah, look,
1: I can break it down. <laughs> Entry fee is about two grand. Um, I would need flights um, to Hawaii for four people, including myself. Um, and they're about $1,000 each. Mm-hmm. Um, a hotel for five nights for four people, um, it could range anywhere from 250 a night to like 400 a night depending. And, then, you know, so that's like another like six, you know, $5,000, $6,000, um, food, rental car. That's another like 1500. And then you've got my bike. So (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. It's not something like, and that's probably like on the low end, I'm sure like people would probably go spend a lot more money, um, if they do Ultraman, if they take it really seriously. Um, so, huh. yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So I guess this gets to the whole, like, what have you been up to since you've retired uh, <laughs> question? Because you retired in 2017. And we'll, you know, obviously talk about that. But, I mean, most people in retirement don't decide to like, hey, what if I could win an Ultraman world title
1: yeah, I, I just thought I was, you know, after retiring, I was just going to kick back and enjoy, like, not doing much. But I, I just, I don't know, what's I'm, I'm, mentally wired to do stuff, to be physically active, and then. You know, I kind of went down the coaching route, which I've been enjoying like so much. And then I started getting private clients because COVID kind of kicked everybody out of the gyms um, and people wanted some, you know, private training for like biking or like running or swimming. So I managed to pick up a a lot of clients that way that I trained privately. So that kind of like fed into this like idea of like being a little bit fitter than I thought maybe, you know going back into some sort of racing Uh, but in terms of like you know doing stuff like I used to do like professionally like doing Ironman or 70.3s I don't have any plans on doing that I think that's just because it hurts so much you know that the the ultra distance is just long and steady Mm -hmm. Um, even Ironman, it's long, but you don't go steady, you hurt. It's like you, you push really hard. I mean, especially when you're racing like, like for, to win a race, which was like every time for me, like there was never an easy Ironman. It was always hard and it always hurt. And I think with Ultraman, it's just like you get in your groove and you can stay there and you can have fun and enjoy it, which I didn't have any fun when I was racing as a pro, not <laughs> During the race, I had a lot of fun afterwards, but um, when I was racing as a pro, it's, it was like business. It was like serious stuff, and, um, and I think that's kind of what I'm enjoying about like sport right now, and not specifically triathlon, but just working out in general, and I just feel like I'm enjoying it so much. So, yeah, I'm, it's part of my DNA, and that's kind of what I always um, will do, probably, until I can't anymore.
0: How much is that? I'm always curious how much uh, training a week that entails then for you as a you know casually <laughs> as a trainer Alrighty.
1: um you know i get up to about 20, 20 to 30 hours on like when i when i've got clients who are all training for the same thing who all want to go out for 2 3 hour rides or you know that sort of thing like it it can get up to like a 30 hour week cuz i also throw my running in there and my swimming in there and but um typically like about 15 hours a week
0: <laughs> yeah so you're like that's not bad that's fine
1: yeah, and, you know, and then, like, I'm at home on my computer in the middle of that, like, working on training plans. We have our, the Club Leander Cave, which, you know, we work on that as well, and then um, I'm working on an app right now. Um, so it, there's a lot of thing, moving parts that I have going on in the background. It's not just all, like, physical stuff. I do sit down every now and then.
0: <laughs> That's good. Sit down, get some rest. Well, sort of rest on your computer, so. Right, Yeah. So, you got started in triathlon. I mean, I was going to say over 20 years ago. But at this point, I mean, maybe it's over 30 years ago when you were just a kid, right? And you're, uh, I understand your sister was actually the one who was into triathlon first.
1: Yes, she was. She was doing it. Um, well, we, she was doing it like through school. She actually did the first triathlon. I was a, in a team. Mm. Um, and I was just in awe of my sister. It was a sprint distance. And, um, I couldn't believe my sister did this. It was just, it blew my mind. Like, oh my gosh, she ran 5K and she rode like 25K or 20K and then she swam like five. It was just like, I could do the swimming because that was my background, but like everything else was like, oh my gosh, it was so far. Um, and then, you know, I did like a shorter distance than that. When I started out, I did like this Iron Kids series, which was in Cairns at the time. And, um, and that was like maybe ha- half a sprint distance. And um, I did that and, and I won. That was my first ever one. I did it on a mountain bike and I kind of got the bug after that. I was, I was excited to do another one and win again. And um, I enjoyed just the, the dynamics of a triathlon versus just swimming, which I was doing where you've got these three different disciplines. And um, yeah, so I, I took to it pretty early. I never thought I'd be a professional triathlete though, not till some years later. Um, I mean, at that age, you're not really thinking about a career mm-hmm. in sport is, is an or a career in anything. is in that, Like, to be honest, you're just kind of you know, working out and training and competing and mostly doing what your parents say. Right.
0: <laughs> how common is, like, because uh, you grew up in Australia, how common is kids' triathlon there? Is it, are all the kids into it? Is this why they're so good? I think every
1: kid gets into triathlon at okay. some point when they're young. It's either – well, it's swimming. Mm. That's always like one of the first sports, and um, and running through school. Um, some some schools have triathlon, some don't. Our school adopted it very young. Well, I'd say our region adopted it very when I was very young. Um, so quite some time ago, we already had like I don't. I mean, this is going back in the history <laughs> books, but like Brad Bevan, um, he was like a professional triathlete from Cairns where I grew up, and he uh, he you know, it was kind of amazing. And, um, we had him as a role model and then Karen Nissen came through as a, another athlete from our area. So it kind of was easy to see triathlon growing within, Mm um, our, like, like area or region, because we had these kind of role models to look up to, and, um, we already had these iron kids series and, Things like this, probably a long time before a lot of other hmm. uh places, cities or even countries around the world even had heard of triathlon.
0: Yeah, I could imagine. Um, that. So, yeah.
1: yeah, and then just Australia in general, like everything's outdoors. I mean <laughs> Yeah, parents kick you out the door after you get back from school and they just, they don't want you in the, in the house doing anything for, <laughs> until dinner time. So There's also yeah, swimming so pools everywhere,
0: like, I feel like. So
1: yeah, I mean, we had that luxury for sure. Um, and honestly, like, it's an outdoor country. Like, kids just, you know, adopt an outdoor lifestyle um, very young.
0: So then why? So you eventually decided to move to the U.K. to train for triathlon. Why would you move to the U.K. from Australia then? I don't understand. That I mean, that was just mostly because I was born in the U.K. Right. Um, and this is going to sound kind
1: of maybe – I don't know, a little self-serving, but <laughs> um, I, at the time, when I was competing in Australia in triathlon, just as a junior, um, I was struggling a lot. Like, I didn't come from a lot of money, so I worked really hard. I was working three jobs, and I was just trying to, like, make my way and, mm-hmm. and be good at the sport and afford the sport and travel, and I couldn't, and, and then I was racing, and, I wasn't really earning – I didn't earn prize money at that point so I wasn't, like, in the, the professional league. And then when we got to races junior elites against the pros every now and then, I would beat a lot of them, but I wouldn't get paid any prize money. And then, you know, we had the likes of, like, three of the girls um, at the time were already world champions and they are like, Olympic champions. It was just, like, really hard to get
0: mm. a leg up right.
1: <clears throat> and, like – Achieve like the next level, and um, and I was actually at a race in Sydney, and uh, one of the British coaches approached me, um, and he said, like, you know, we know you're born in the UK. Like, have you considered racing for the UK? And I was like, I hadn't even like had never toyed with that idea before, um, and I was like, I haven't. They're like, well, you should think about it. We we need good athletes and. So in a way, they kind of poached me, but also in a way, like I felt like I was, um, I just had to take the the best shot right. for myself, and, um, and in, in hindsight, if I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't have achieved half the results or had half the career in the sport that I've had, um, and then, you know, I went on from there, and I managed to, you know, get into the British system, and it took me a couple of years before I actually received any funding but at least i was earning prize money in europe and i actually you know had a good shot at being a pro whereas in australia i couldn't earn prize money every time i turned up to hmm. a race there would be like like five girls who were <coughs> champions
0: okay so it was, i see what you're saying so then but then you had to because i was th- sitting here thinking like gosh the training in the uk like it's all rainy and not as good and but i got it there,
1: yeah there's definitely like a um <coughs> It's definitely a part of training in the UK that has its tough side. But, I mean, if you can train there, you can train anywhere. (laughs) And I tell you, it may be so tough. Um, You know, I had to adjust a lot. I mean, when I turned up, it was snow on the ground. I'd never seen snow before. Oh, really? And so I was shocked. And then I'm like, I don't have warm stuff to wear for training or, like, I I couldn't believe it. And the rows are terrible. I mean, there was a lot of things, but, um, I, I just embraced it and I, and I just never took my eye off the prize. Like for me, it was, wasn't about like where I was, it was about where I was going. And so eventually like, you know, I started just like fitting in the training where I could, I'd have to switch it to indoors if necessary. And made the most of the outdoors when it was fine weather. And, um, I really ended up loving like running in the UK, the the trails and um, forests and things like that. Which that was something very new to me. And the facilities, the training facilities that we had, were incredible. Hmm. Like even though, yeah, you'd be indoors, but I mean, the pools were amazing, the gyms were amazing. So I think they what they made up for is, for the weather is what they <laughs> they made indoor training. Um, they've made it really easy to train indoors right. over
0: there. And obviously, you know, the British are. Uh- are super good at triathlon now. So clearly it worked out.
1: Yeah. I mean, all their training centers they have for triathlon. I mean, there's, they've got everything there for athletes and mm-hmm. in, in a, a very small place. So, you know, an athlete just has to live nearby and they can train, you know, all day, every day. Uh, and that's very, you know, when you make training easy for an athlete, it's, it, you know, takes a little load off the athlete's logistics and, and it just enables them to focus solely on, on the sport.
0: Right. And you started out, like you said, kind of in the British system, which means short course ob- over there and, and in the Olympic kind of pipeline, I want to say you had a had a breakout year does it feel like a breakout year in like 20, 2002 2003 you know when you won uh your second at commonwealth games you won the world title do you know you're having a breakout at the time or is it just kind of like oh this was a good race and then you move on to the next one no
1: i knew like i, I at that point i was training so well and i just knew from my numbers hmm. and my performances that i i was ready for a good result um and I just had to race to get it, you know, and, and it did come. It wasn't like I was going to the race expecting to win. Um, like For example, my coach, Chris Jones, um, asked me at the start of the World Champs in Cancun uh, in 2002, he says, well, what's your goal? And I was like, I want to win. <laughs> and he's like, can you give us a more realistic goal? <laughs> and I was like, is that real unrealistic? All right, well, top five. And he goes, okay, let's do top five. Um, yeah, and then once I, like, he was down the wrong side of the course to see me finish. So, and at the time when he saw me, I was in second. So once he made his way to the finish line, he's like, oh, second's so great. And I was like, I told you I was going to win. He goes, what? <laughs> yeah. He had no clue that I'd actually won at that point. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I go into every race, like with that goal. And like any other race, I I would always go in just trying to win. My goal was to win. I wasn't like going in saying, oh, I'm going to come like fifth. It's like I would always go in with the goal of winning and nine times out of ten it doesn't happen, but like sometimes it does. But I always with with that in the back of my mind, like I'm never going to like give up, Mm -hmm. right? And um, so that was my mindset going in. And and in Cancun I was like – I wasn't training around a lot of athletes. I just knew, like, for me personally, I was as fit as I could possibly be, and I was like, there's no one training harder than me right now. I mean, I was training so hard. So I was just like, I, I've got a pretty good shot here. Um, and then same with the Commonwealth Games. It was um, before uh, the World Champs that year, and same thing. I was just – I was training so hard. I mean, there's there's nothing I wasn't doing to be the best athlete in the world at that point. Um legally, of course. (laughs) Um, because you have to say that these days. Um, but yeah, I, I just trained so well, so consistently, no injury. And it was just, I was just having the best like training block of my life. And I just knew going into that year that I had everything it takes Hmm. to do well. And I just need to pull it off.
0: That was the the Commonwealth Games this past weekend. And, it does seem like it's a. It's often like a first kind of breakthrough race for a lot of people, who then you see kind of on on bigger stages after that.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's actually a great race to kind of have a breakout career because it it's big enough but small enough. <laughs> um, it's like half the world, right, right. <laughs> if you like, and but it's a very very high pressure race. I mean, you're, it's it's the big games. It's like comparable to the Olympics for the Commonwealth countries, right? And. Um, and it gets as much exposure in the press as it does with a lot of other, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, you know, big, um, big sporting events. So it's in terms of, like, if you can handle the pressure there, like, and do well, like, you can go on to big things. And um, I think that was, like, for me, I was able to do that. It was, it, I mean, it was, I'd never been to the Olympics. I, that was the one thing I never managed to achieve. But, like, the Commonwealth Games is, it was intense. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like just rocking up to a one day, you know, world champs. It was like a whole bunch of stuff with an opening ceremony and, you know, the credentials for this. And it was it was a lot. A lot was going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, we've we been trying to understand it over here in the U.S. It's very confusing. (laughs) So, Yeah. And then obviously, eventually you I mean, like you said, you were kind of. The selection process in the Olympics is weird to us for like the British and the australian teams but you were you know overlooked for it and, and moved up to mid-distance as you kind of moved in your career to mid-distance and then long course did you change anything did you like what was the hardest part about you know going into a new
1: um honestly no not a lot i mean hmm. i was already training so much and so hard that it was simply easy for me to go on to do a, a middle distance race um and I was already i mean the one of the first pro races I ever did was the half iron when oh, really? I was sixteen, yeah, and that was back in Australia. that was the first prize money I think mm-hmm. I ever won um so it's kind of already like mentally geared to do longer stuff i just hadn't kind of settled into that because i was still hoping or you know trying to make the olympics but then after that really didn't happen and i just got tired of like you know the political side of like selection i just decided you know i'm off on my own here i want to do it for myself um still obviously racing under the British flag, but not having anyone tell me I can't do this race or I can do that race or, you know, I'm not on this team, or I am on that team. It was it was just me and I was supporting myself and making those decisions and, yeah, there's a financial penalty for that because I wasn't then any entitled to any um, – any funding or financial assistance from the government, which a lot of the athletes, if not all the athletes, on the British team are, um, if you're doing Olympic mm. distance. So, uh, but at the same time, it gave me that freedom to um, to take that dive into the, the middle distance, and um, it took a few years before I started getting decent sponsorships. But at least I went, you know, I was earning prize money to support myself, mm-hmm. and um, and that was the start I needed to kind of make that shift to, to long distance racing.
0: So if you didn't have to change anything when you went, you know, you're already, the volume was already there from a living distance to something. Did anything change when you moved up to Ironman?
1: Yeah. Um, in, in Ironman distance racing, you really have to pay attention to, um, to what goes in your mouth right, (laughs) and when and how much, and, with with Olympic distance you know I'd be lucky to get a gel in in half iron distance I would get some gels in and you know take some Gatorade in my bottles it wasn't that that complicated but then come the Ironman distance I was having all sorts of trouble because because I I, I don't know some like either things were out like I didn't take enough salt I'd have gut issues I would be underhydrated, overhydrated. it was just a whole <laughs> like thing that I was trying to work out and Eventually, I did get help, and that made a huge difference. Uh, Brian Shea um, helped me uh, in 2010, and then I had a pretty good race in 2011 with a third, and then finally won in 2012. but yeah, up until then, I was like, what am I doing right? Mm. What am I doing wrong? I couldn't put my finger on it. I would be trying different things. It would either work or not work. And so, yeah, the the nutrition side of Ironman racing is super important and not to be overlooked. And initially, I was a bit ignorant to that. I, I didn't think I, I would have such a big problem with it because I love eating. Like I eat all the time when I'm training and I have no problem with like going out for a four or five-hour ride and eating a sandwich or whatever, like in the middle of it. Or, uh, but I try to put that into an Ironman. It just didn't work, you know. So I had to change, like, this idea that I can't just stomach anything when I'm racing. I have to be a little bit more dialed in and, uh, and you know, find the find the right calories in the right places, which was easy for my body to digest. And once I got that, yeah, it's kind of.
0: So that's what you, like, <laughs> when you say you had to finally figure it out, that was the issue was you were trying to just eat lots of different things and all over the place. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, it was. It was like I literally took a sandwich one time when I raced. I also took, I remember early on, I took a banana, um, which didn't, you know, especially when you um, have it in transition and you stick it in your pocket for the ride and you pull it out, it's like mush. Um, Then I tried a cliff bar, which I, when I'm in my TT bars, I discovered it falls out of my mouth as I'm chewing it because I don't breathe through my nose. (laughs) So, yeah, so ultimately for me, I had to like really just get all my energy and, um, calories in through liquid form. And, and that was what worked for me in the end.
0: Got it. Yeah. I think a lot of, I feel like a lot of the pros do that cause they're just going so hard, right? They can't, yeah, they can't breathe.
1: I didn't even know what other pros did. Yeah. I was just like, Oh, this is like some me. It doesn't actually. Yeah. So
0: I mean, 2012 ended up working out though. You won, I mean, you became the first person ever to do 70.3 worlds and Ironman worlds in the same year. But I think the year, I think you started out the year sick and injured, right? It didn't look like it was going to be this like amazing year.
1: Oh yeah. I actually had um, a really a back injury. Hmm. Um, I could barely walk. This was in June. I remember June, July, because I remember being on my roof in Tucson with a paddle pool and having like kinesio tape all over me because my back was so bad. Um, so yeah, this was like, a big issue i I'd, I'd had it i was i raced i remember racing it racing um what was it santa rosa what was that one oh, um fine yeah. man mm-hmm. um and i just got over it and i was still like kind of very nervous because it, it was really really bad and it took me out for at least eight weeks so I had no clue, like coming into 2012, like 70.3 Worlds, whether I was in great shape or not. Um, I, I trained solely on my own. I, I didn't, I was in Boulder for a lot of that, but not really Boulder when I was in, um, just outside of Boulder in Broomfield. Okay. Um, I joined the wrong gym. I thought um, the there was one gym which I thought everyone was going to, and I joined it. And turns out it was the wrong gym. Oh so really? I was like, oh, That's just,
0: that sounds very Boulder, yeah. <laughs>
1: So, you know, um, I, I, I was happy just to be there training on my own and enjoying like being in this like awesome place in the mountains and, um, you know, I was doing my training as prescribed sometimes a little bit more because I, you know, was enjoying it so much and um, I didn't really have a good finger on my pulse in terms of how fit I was. Um, so it was almost a shock when I won the 70.3 Worlds. Um, and but going into Kona was different, I actually felt, um, much fitter and stronger than I'd ever felt before going into Kona. Um, that one I was a little bit more confident of, um, and that was always the goal anyway. The 70.3 worlds, if anything was a bonus that year, it wasn't the, it wasn't my a race. It was just something that I'd gone to use as a, a prep race for Kona. So it was, um, yeah, kind of a shock for many reasons.
0: Did it put more pressure on you then going into Kona? How did you deal with kind of that?
1: Again, not really because mm-hmm. I'd always focused on Kona as, as, the goal, a race for the year. And I never really used, um, anything from, the uh, 70.3 in terms of my, my fitness or, or my performance, mm-hmm. um, as a distraction. Um, and that's why I think, and I got to Kona early. I got there. I literally flew from, um, Las Vegas to, to Hawaii and was out there so early, and I just kind of felt like I was in this really nice, nice, peaceful place when I was training out there without any, um, any pressure or any stress. Um, there was no a- other athletes. Maybe I think Lindsay Corbin was out there right. that year, and we trained a lot together. But there was only it was only us. There was not really anyone out there at that point. No one was really going to the island that early to train <laughs> in those days. Now it's just like a thing. Just, yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay, and. uh, so if Kona was the whole focus and then, you know, you did this thing that like had never been done before at that point. Um, did Was it, what was the attention then? Like after that was, was it, you know, wow. Like we didn't think someone could win both in the same year. I mean, I still,
1: for me, I was never like about the 70.3. So it was right. always like, you know, I won Kona. Like that mm-hmm. was the thing, like thing I always wanted to do. I won Kona. Um, and you know, I guess it wasn't until later then, that people started to say, "Hey, wait a second! This is like the first person who's ever done this. This right. is pretty badass." And um, and I, yeah, I'd never really like put that together as being such a huge achievement, but. Um, but now, like, when I see so few people have been able to achieve it, maybe it is a big deal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think staying, like, not hurt and, you know, fit and all of that is is tough. And out of all, okay, so now you've, you've been a world champion then at, like, quite a few distances, maybe Ultraman, soon to come, who knows. What – I know people probably always ask this. Which one was the hardest? Like, what's the hardest distance then?
1: Um, the hardest one to win was always Kona for me. Hmm. I think there was just so many things that could go wrong in such a – it's a long day and, uh, I mean, even that year in Kona, I had a penalty. It wasn't mm. always, like, clean sailing during that race itself. And, um, and yes, yeah, you never know, like, conditions can hit one way or another and affect you in one way or another. Thankfully, it was super hot and that was what I what I needed. Um, so, for me, it was the better, like, case scenario of having, like, the hottest, windiest conditions, um, which, you know, so it doesn't suit a lot of people. Um, and... Other, other years it's been mild and not really helpful to the athletes who um, are better suited to those conditions. Right. And then, you know, you've got issues with like some like illness and injury and that I always had to deal with going into Kona one year or another. And then the, the issues I had leading up to the before I finally got my nutrition right, there was that. And then after I'd won that year, i had years of just like struggling with injury and um, so you know, it was like uh, the statistically, uh, like it wasn't great for me. I I had attempted um, Hawaii eleven times and I'd won it once, so <laughs> it's <was> pretty <laughs> not great statistics there. Um, I did win it after seven years of trying, so that I guess you know, better late than never. <laughs> right, never give up, right? Right, and then I kept trying.
0: But then, out of all of the distances, then in all of the titles, here's the other question: Which one's your favorite?
1: And it's not even a title. I was second that year in the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, but it was probably one of my favorites um mm-hmm. and most meaningful because it was the only time my whole family had been there to watch something big like that and see me win, uh, or not win, but like achieve a, a medal in like the Commonwealth Games, which is really big if you're in the Commonwealth, just not in the US. <laughs> everyone needs everyone in the US needs to take a history lesson and understand like what the Commonwealth is, but um But yeah, that was like really special to me. My parents didn't get to see me race all that often and that year I flew them over and I put them up and it's the first time they've been back in the UK for 20 years. So there was a lot of things (laughs) around that race, which was very special um, and then, you know, seeing them at the finish line and <laughs> the best part of that right. was my mum said afterwards, she's like, Oh, I never thought you'd be this good. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you could, I was like, that's good. That's, you know, you take that in a good way or a bad way. I think I took it in, in a good way at the time, <laughs> but yeah, I'd say that was one of the most special things. And and my brother and sister were there in Kona the year I won, which was also really special. Um, and yeah, they have been, my, my sister, actually my brother had been there a couple of times too. So they have been watching me fail and fail and fail and then finally achieve. So I think they kind of like appreciated the fact that, you know, I won and I, they were there to watch it finally. Um, I think for the most part, they used it as a little holiday. <laughs>
0: but oh. They're like,
1: oh, finally she's won.
0: Did you feel like after, you know, seven years to win Kona, did you then feel like, all right, you had achieved everything you wanted to achieve? Uh or did she still have no, more? Because I still
1: wanted to like. I, I definitely wasn't done as an athlete. I I thought I could easily win it again. Um, right. And I think that the injury I had kind of robbed me of that. Um, it wasn't the hardest I'd ever trained or the fittest I'd ever felt when I won. Um, and then in 2015, actually, I felt that that was the year where I'd kind of had everything like to win it again. Um, when I finally recovered from this injury, had consistent training, got everything right, trained my ass off, felt like I was in the best shape of my life, but I crashed my bike in the race. So, you know, again, going back to like how hard it is to win there. Like, I don't know if I can swear, but shit happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what then, I mean, obviously eventually you decided to retire in 2017 slash 18. What kind of made you uh, make that decision then?
1: I mean, I kind of, had felt like I needed to retire like a few years before that and mostly Mm -hmm. because I was physically on the decline I was training as hard as ever I was racing as hard as ever I just wasn't able to pull off the racing performance Mm -hmm. that um that would typically translate with that sort of training and effort and I just loved racing so much and I think part of that love was because I was able to, uh, get on the podium or win every now and then, you know, and then once I wasn't able to be that competitive anymore, I kind of started to lose the love of it. And, hmm. um, I, I love, I mean, I like training. I think I just loved racing that much more. Um, and so that was kind of it. And honestly, it was, it was just a point too where, I mean, I, I was 40. I'd spent 18 years doing this professionally. Um, it was just, I felt there's just so many things where I was just seeing like, now's a good time.
0: Is there like a, a retirement guidebook? Like do people like, how do you know what to do when you retire?
1: You don't. And right. I think that's why I said like a few years before I actually retired, I'd thought about it. And I think you need to figure out some sort of exit strategy. And for me, um, the coaching was something I'd started in 2015. I'd started my business, I'd started getting athletes, I'd also started like creating my own um, uh, like uh, payment system and everything in place and so everything was seamless. As soon as I retired, I already had, had money coming in and I think also a goal. Um, and also something to do <laughs> because if right. you just retire and think that something's going to fall on your lap, it doesn't. And I think it's easy to fall into depression because you're so used to having these goals every day. When you wake up, you've got this goal for, for any training practice you do. You've got a goal coming up for a race and all of a sudden you go from nothing there. Like in in your future like there's there's no goals anymore um so having something lined up I for me I think is the most important thing um and then some people I know athletes who've gone back to school gone back to studying Mm -hmm. um and then changed careers completely Um, Sam McGlone's one of those she she's now a doctor and it probably has nothing to do with the sport at all anymore, and she checked out from triathlon, and and is now a very successful doctor. So you know you've got there's options out there. I just think you need to be prepared for what they are um, before you actually decide to hang up the racing flats.
0: And what uh, to keep yourself, you know, kind of motivated, What are your goals now? Like, what are your small term, long term? Oh my
1: my my! Sh- I guess short and long term. I'm working on this app. Um, I can't disclose exactly what it is right now. Um because it's still in development. But um that's short term because I every like I have like a a roadmap and I'm hitting like different goals along that roadmap as I go, and then the long term would would be for that to be a huge success. Um mm-hmm. and then the coaching business to grow that. Um I I I enjoy that a lot. I'm not sure if it's like the long-term plan heading down the road, you know, 20 years from now, I'm definitely not going to be able to train clients like I do uh, <laughs> for the rest of my life. And, um, and then we have the club, um, the club, Leander Cave where we're growing that as well. It's not just based in Miami. It's, it's kind of more of a, um, a national club. So we, we invite athletes to come join that. And, and we have like a, a good little team uh, of athletes racing. So those like are all the, like, goals that i have going on along the way um and then finally there's actually something i've been working on for some years with another pro athlete or former pro lisa roberts it's a um, pro it's a protein product but we had issues through covid to find a manufacturer so we finally
0: we're finally
1: coming down closer to that thing getting kind of officially launched um but yeah, that's that's someone something's something's always like I forget about because it's been so long, but then we're like we're literally like <laughs> going into our final formulation of that product um soon. Okay, okay. So yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that little goals that keep me busy along the way and then like, you know, I guess the long term one. Um yeah, being the app that I I wanna have like up and on everybody's phones. <laughs>
0: Right, right. Okay, so you have lots of different things kind of in the works, right? Yeah, now.
1: I'd say the the thing I really spend most of my time in on is the app. The other things that you know mm. are just, um, well, the the coaching in the app, yeah.
0: You know. And maybe Ultraman, apparently.
1: Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I don't know if I can actually train like you're meant to train for an Ultraman. Not that I even know mm. what you're meant to do, but um, yeah, I mean, that that that's a lot. I, I'm not kind of geared for that anymore that sort of like the long miles bi- biking <laughs> I mean I do long miles bike but not like anything over 100 miles or running I think the longest run I did, I did for this Ultraman was 16 miles so that's why running 52 <laughs> miles was like wait a second how far am I going um and that's why it's kind of like oh man I'm actually fitter than I thought you know um but yeah so right. and then, yeah I don't the longest swim I did for this was three miles. So I don't ask uh, three miles, not even three miles, 3000 yards. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'll train much differently. If I did go for worlds, it'll just be like, um, yeah, I'll try, maybe try and do a little bit more running.
0: <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting thing, obviously, because as it gets longer, I mean, we were talking, you'd get, you know, women, tend to do better you also see older athletes do better so, yeah. yeah look i
1: don't know yeah. if there's a right yeah. or wrong way to train for something like this sometimes yeah. in a in one respect i feel like i i got through it because i wasn't burned out and overtrained. Mm-hmm. um but then at the same time i'm like i probably could have did have done a few more you know running miles or bike miles so
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right well we'll you know keep our eye out and uh and keep our eye out for your app obviously mm-hmm. so I'll let you know it's in the sporting. <laughs> Is arena, there
1: any, so I'm sure you'll. Pick I it up. would guess. I would assume
0: it's like <laughs> triathlon fitness related. So
1: yeah, something like that.
0: Is there <laughs> uh, anything else you know that you wish you had known when you were 14 and uh, and starting triathlon?
1: No, I mean at that age, I was happy where I was, enjoying it. I think getting in too serious too young um, would have been. A problem for me so I think right. I, I did it I did it well I would have maybe um, liked to have had a little bit more of a specific tri- uh, triathlon coach as opposed to mm-hmm. I just had a swimming coach and like a running coach that I kind of dabbled with but never a, a triathlon coach until I was like in my 20s so I think I would have probably gone for a coach a little bit more specific to the
0: sport makes sense Well, thanks so much for chatting with us. And, you know, congrats on everything, I feel like, on all of the different things you're doing. Thanks so much. It's been fun. Don't forget, tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Karoo 2 as their trusted riding companion. It was named Bicycling Magazine's Editor's Choice in GPS Cycling Computers for the past two years. And now, Hammerhead is giving Triathlete Hour listeners an exclusive, limited-time offer. Get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code triathletehour at checkout to get yours today. That's a free heart rate monitor with a purchase of a Carew 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart and use promo code Hour, all one word. Thanks to Leonda and to Hammerhead and thanks to all of you. Keep training and we'll be back at the start of September with new episodes.